Recorded live. This show is brought to you by TalkShoe, where anyone can create their own internet talk show. Check it out at T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E dot com. Good day wherever you are listening from, and welcome once again to IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes. I am here in the studio with my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, and our assistant here in the studio, cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick. Um, We are joining uh, all of you live today. We'll also be available for download at a later date. Today's sponsors for our show include John Don Products, where remediation and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com, J-O-N-D-O-N.com, and Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, at ieconnections.com. Today's guests are Richard Beck, who's the Facilities Management Director at Lee County Government in Florida, Fort Myers area, Pete Consiglia, who is a consultant, trainer, and activist. I like that last part, activist. And Howard Shores of Asporta Wash Systems. That will be our technology highlight for today. They have an interesting technology for cleaning some of the contents that we may run across during these indoor air quality issues that occur from time to time. If you would like to contact us on the show live, you can call in live and sign up on the TalkShoe website, get your PIN, and then dial 724-444-7444. The show ID is 1547. That's uh, TalkShoe, You can also join us there and text message us questions for our guests. During the week, if you have questions or you would like more information, you can reach us at info, I-N-F-O, at IAQtraining.com. My co-host here is Cliff Slotnick. Cliff? Uh, Good morning, Chad. Good to be here. Great to have you. Do we have a a trivia question for today? Sure. The microband trivia question for today is we're looking for a definition. And what this definition is for is a product which can show a bacterial reduction of at least 99.9% within five minutes. And we're looking for the definition of what that test defines. The uh, definition of what that is, the legal definition, I guess, the legal terminology. Right. Very good. And uh, we've also still have, have one or two outstanding questions that I believe we are still looking for answers to get those prizes. Uh, this first one seems to be the really tough one, the Latin derivation of the word stachybotrys. Nobody's Correct. gotten back to us with that one. Correct. And then last week? Uh, that one's still in play. Another one that's still in play is a mold inspector who found extensive fuzzy white stuff on a cinder block wall when viewed under a microscope. Crystalline structure was visible. An accredited AIHA lab determined the material not to be biological, but rather chemical. What we're looking for is the, chem- uh, the chemical composition of what was found. 
And we got three questions in play. We had one answer. They told us that the material was efflorescence, which is correct, but they didn't get us the chemical composition, the primary chemical that we would find within that efflorescence. And the trivia question is brought to us by Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Okay, today's first guest is Mr. Richard Beck. He's the Facilities Management Division Director at Lee County, Florida. The uh, Lee County, Florida Facilities Management Director position is responsible for the maintenance and some minor remodeling of all county-owned or leased facilities, which currently number over 400. A couple of interesting facilities that Rich is in charge of are the baseball stadiums for the Boston Red Sox and Minnesota Twins during, I assume, their spring training, all the libraries, sheriff stations, and park administrative buildings, courthouses, maximum security jails. He has a staff of about 130 people involved in all trades, building maintenance disciplines, Previous to working with Lee County, he worked for a major electric utility and was supervisor for radiation protection and radiochemistry training at a nuclear generating plant in New Jersey. And uh, Rich is a veteran of the United States Navy, served on several types of vessels during his enlistment, and I met Rich through a mutual friend, actually one of his uh, facilities people that run the IAQ division, Mike Casanova. Uh, Rich, are you there, and can we bring you in on the line? Yeah, hi, Joe. Good morning, Rich. Good morning. Welcome. It's great to have you here. Our first facilities manager, and the reason we chose you was that I am very much aware of the type of program that you have in, in Lee County, and uh, I've been very impressed with the type of work you're doing down there. Maybe you could, if you would, describe a little bit about the indoor air quality that you program that you've developed at Lee County and how maybe it's unique from other programs around the country. Okay. Um, well, of course, when I, when I came here from New Jersey, uh, the air quality that I dealt with for, you know, 20-plus years dealt with, you know, radiation and radioactivity uh, in the air, uh, when I got down here, I thought I'd pretty much put that away forever. And uh, as I was acclimating to the new job, uh, I, I saw some files uh, about indoor air quality issues. And as, as I started to read through them, I noticed that in many instances, they were from complaints of workers assigned to a building and... I would read it, and uh, the, the practice at the time was if people complained about indoor air quality, you would bring in an outside vendor, they would come and test the air, they would look at the HVAC system, uh, they would prepare a report, they would give it to us, we would have an HVAC crew go out and clean the pans, clean the coils, clean the ducts, whatever, and it was case closed, no, no follow-up, no nothing. Well... When you started to read the third report over over just a few months and it was the same facility, you know, a wise man would say, why are we having these 
these same problems over and over again at the same facility. So I called in the supervisors and we started to talk about, you know, how we did uh, preventative maintenance and found out that, that essentially we we didn't. We we had a very, very good reactive maintenance group. When when things broke, we fixed them. But we essentially waited till there was a problem. And uh, coming from a nuclear power environment where 98% of all maintenance is preventative, because you don't want to have a lot of things break at a nuke plant, uh, it just seemed that we needed to refocus a little bit and start doing some preventative work, especially in the area of of uh, indoor air quality, because in, in early 2002, I mean, you know what the situation was. It was like a feeding frenzy. Um, well, of course, the, the HVAC people, it was a major change in their philosophy, and, and uh, uh, they didn't feel they were staffed to do preventative maintenance. We had no... we. We didn't routinely go in and clean coils. There was no, I mean, they were still using some, uh, yeah, I mean, filter, yeah, caustic to clean to clean filters and or to clean coils. Some of the filters were still spun. They weren't they weren't uh, you know pleated. Um, there were just some issues. Rich, I got a question for you. Did the Marion County Courthouse? situation with building defects and subsequent molt problems, was that an influence on your program at all? You bet. I, I found out about that, and it just sent, uh, it sent shivers down my spine because I could see a lot of the same issues here. Um, uh, we were still in two, 2002, we were still allowing a vinyl wallpaper to be put on exterior walls. Um, our, our roofing, uh, well, we, they didn't even know what, you know, uh, using uh, uh, any kind of infrared to look for uh, leaks. Um, there were just a lot of the same and potentials for, 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 for significant issues. Our, our school board down here, which is not part of Lee County government, um, they were having, they were farther down the the the, the line in having problems. Um, there were teachers openly complaining about uh, indoor air quality issues. Parents were pulling kids out of schools. It was almost a daily article in our local newspapers about it. And um, not wanting to have the shortest uh, new career in the history of facilities management, really thought we needed. To get a handle on it before we got sucked into that whirlwind, and you know I can't be the only person that felt that way. I mean, other other managers, whether you're managing a large office building or or several buildings, back in 2002, you you know what the uh, what the environment was. It was you know just crazy. And that, so go ahead. We, yeah. Well, that that leads me to a question that actually uh, was called in earlier, and it's from uh, Danny Hunt, actually, someone that I think a few of us know here, and I know that Michael, your uh, director, your, I'm not sure what Mike's title is anymore, he keeps, uh, seems to be moving on uh, upward with your group there, but uh, at a time when it seems like facilities 
management and owners of facilities are actually cutting back on maintenance, you were able to, it seems, actually increase the amount of money that was being spent on maintenance. How how were you able to do that? Well, I'd like to take credit for it, but I can't. A lot of it was just the situation I came into. Uh, a couple of years before I came down here, uh, county administration had attempted to privatize all county maintenance. And my predecessor was given permission to prepare a contract and bid to keep the maintenance of county buildings in-house, just like he would be a private vendor. And he did that and actually convinced the Board of County Commissioners and county administration that he could maintain the buildings cheaper than an outside vendor. Uh, And in so doing, he essentially established a de facto contract called a Memorandum of Understanding with the county commissioners. Now, everybody that works for me, we're county employees, but we have a... uh, we actually have a contract that we get to charge back to county entities for uh, work that we do on their buildings, uh, which other government agencies may not have that have that uh, that ability. Now, at the same time I came here in 2001, uh, ever since Lee County was a Lee County, and I don't know how long, how many years back that goes, uh, they had managed to acquire a little over 1 million square feet of space under county government. That includes parks, uh, all the buildings, about a million. Well, for whatever reason, when I got here, the county just started to just explode exponentially. And uh, today, just, well, maybe five years later, we've gone from a little over a million to about 3,300,000 square feet of space that we maintain. And in the MOU... It says that for every 46,000 square feet of space we acquire, I get to hire a person and with all the, all the necessary tools and equipment that that position will need. So, so previous to my hiring, we only had about 65 people. Now we're over 130, and I try to ride the bubble and keep us lean and mean. So we actually have several positions that I could have hired that I didn't. So all those positions that I hire, they come with salary, equipment. And what I was able to do was take a position from that increase in in space and designate it as as an indoor air quality and preventative maintenance person, which is where Mike originally, Mike Casanova originally was pulled from the ranks to fill that position. I really had no no idea how rapidly the program was going to explode. And within a few months, um, Mike came to me and said, you know, I can't do both jobs. I can't be entering in uh, the, the, the initial start dates of new air conditioners or, or when, a, when a PM should be done and still be out in the field talking to people who are in buildings who feel there's a, there's a problem and and at that point, we had very few testing instruments. But what we did have, he said, how can I go out and test for CO2 or for, for uh, particulates and still be in the office entering in all this data from all these new buildings? And when I say new buildings, I don't necessarily mean new buildings. 
Our favorite hobby down here is purchasing banks, uh, food stores, uh, office buildings, and then gutting them and redoing them for county purposes. So you kind of get stuck with some old systems. Well, I took Mike and made him, I had a decision to make, and it was basically, what do you want to be, a preventative maintenance guy, or do you want to be the IAQ guy? And he chose IAQ, and I'm very fortunate that he did. Um, and then we went along. So, so luckily for me, to answer your question, funding was never a primary issue, and I was able, through education of my boss and county administration, to convince them that, Whatever money we spent on indoor air quality would pay off in not having to deal with legal issues, employee sick time that they would relate back to the building. It's always the building. Uh, you know, I did some physical numbers showing them the number of times we had brought in outside vendors to test for indoor air quality, and then I showed them the cost of having Mike as a designated IAQ guy in the instrument. And, and the, just from a sound business decision, we saved thousands of dollars a year just having Mike put out fires by going and meeting people as soon as a work order would come in that says, every time I come in this building, my nose starts to run. Well, Mike would be there within just a few hours talking to the person, uh, and, you know, looking for problems, uh, presenting solutions, which at first were very, very simplistic because we didn't have a lot of knowledge. We didn't have a lot of equipment. Um, but the, the results that we found by just having someone go talk to an employee quickly, it, it was dramatic, Joe. You, you, people just immediately said, hey, you know, there's somebody out there who cares and I'm not being ignored. And um, it paid for itself over and over and over again. And it just developed from there. Education and communication, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, the amazing thing, uh, Rich, you're really a mind reader. I think that there were about five or six questions that we were going to ask you that uh, <laughs> that you just answered. And, you know, it was amazing that, you know, many people don't spend more than $100 to buy a digital camera and, you know, to go to your boss and tell him that, you know, you want to spend five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 on an infrared camera. You know, I could just imagine the look on his face and then to hear you say that, uh, they let you buy the necessary tools is wonderful. Uh, I also uh, was glad that you commented on things other than mold, such as particulate. Uh, I think that's real important, and you know some of the challenges that you have in, in renovating the buildings. What are you doing uh, with regards to chemical emissions? You know, within buildings, uh, building products, and things like that. We we actually have had a couple of instances where um, we've had. Uh, fumes. We had a situation where we evacuated a good portion of a huge building called the Justice Center because one group in there uh, had bought a uh, a very complex uh, duplicating machine, like a Xerox, and the uh, the chemical in the process that they used to make up these court records is actually a liquid and some of the liquid is in this five gallon container is never totally used up and it's uh, it, it must have a very low vapor pressure and when they would take it out of the machine and set it outside for trash in the hallway outside I don't mean outside of the building uh, they didn't realize it but the the uh, the, the smell 
and, uh, and the chemicals were getting into the ventilation system, going through the whole building, and we were getting calls of people getting ill. It took us a couple of weeks, Mike, to track down the cause, and when we finally tracked it down to this new um, chemical that was being introduced to the building without our knowledge, you know, the people were very, very uh, sorry. They didn't realize there was an issue because they'd put it out there, they'd close the door, they'd go back to work. But, but some people were really having a reaction to it, and when we solved the problem uh, and let people know what we found, and we developed a system where now they collect these things, and then we actually take them for recycling, uh, you know, the issue went away. We've had, we've had um, it, it almost seems like when we buy a new piece of testing instrument, it, it, it immediately finds a problem. We had, we had just done a renovation at a place called the Grand Jury Room, and uh, the building looked great, but it was an old building that we had rehabbed. And we kept getting complaints that people were getting headaches. Well, we had just gotten a, a meter that could test for a lot of different uh, gases, one of them being sewer gas. And Mike went over there and started testing, and he found high concentrations of sewer gas. Hydrogen sulfide? Yep. yep. And um, what had happened was when they went to make up the vent off of the toilet, uh, it was blocked. Yeah, it was completely blocked, and all the sewer gas was venting into the room. And uh, we would never, I mean, it was a real detective show, but at least we had the instrument that, that pointed it out. Uh, I mean, I can go on. We've had other, we've had some other great examples where, um, uh, you know, we we would send Mike for training in uh, uh, toxic, yeah, toxic toxicology for non-toxicologists. Yeah, toxicology for non-toxicologists. What a, <laughs> but it was great because he comes back with a lot more knowledge. Um, yeah, but then he wants a pay raise at the end of that. Right? <laughs> you know, that's 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 exactly correct. <laughs> We, um, we're we running a, a little short, but I do have a couple quick questions. Do you see other facilities management? I, I assume you're involved in some facilities management associations. Do you see other facility management uh, directors like yourself getting this same type of support? Um, uh, is it getting better, worse? No, it's definitely getting better. It's getting better as I'm able to go meet with uh, my peers and say, hey, you know what? I still don't have a lawsuit uh, pending about somebody saying the building's making them sick. And fewer and fewer people can look and say, yeah, I don't either. Most are saying, yeah, I've got one, I've got two, I've got three. God forbid you have a class action suit, uh, which which one group does have. Um, it goes back to the courthouse, like you were saying. I mean, you can... It's pay me now or pay me a lot later. That's what I like to say. Great. That is great. <clears throat> it's so good to hear because the trends seem to have been going the other way for so long, and I hope that awareness through uh, some of the educational programs that are being put on through different associations and even the facilities management groups are you know, starting to bring this information to their membership and they understand that preventing these problems is a whole lot less expensive than fixing them once they come up. Before we go, we always like to ask um, two questions. One, 
what advice would you give consumers? And I guess we could say that you could take this either way, either consumers that are in the same type of position as you are or naturally you have your own home. And, um, you know, what type of advice would you give consumers out there that are concerned about indoor air quality problems? Uh, the best advice I could have is to establish and then implement routine preventative maintenance. doesn't have to be hugely uh, complicated. Um, every six months, my home in Florida, I open up the cover on my, on my air handler, and I use just a one-gallon bug sprayer with, uh, with uh, the product that we use in the county. I'm not sure I'm allowed to mention the name, but I You I can mention it if you want. More than welcome. It's called BBJ. I, I swear by it because it's a non-corrosive cleaner. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the, uh, the coils today are, are very, very close together. They're very thin metal. You don't want to etch them. So we use BBJ, very non-corrosive but very effective cleaner, followed by uh, BBJ microbiocide. And I put, them on, I put them on my coils every six months, and we put them on the coils here in all the county buildings every six months. And by doing that, I know that we are promoting uh, good air quality in our buildings and in our home, and it's not a difficult process. It just takes setting up the procedure and then sticking to it. Excellent. And the last question, is there anything that you would like to add that we missed? Or, and I know that Mike may want to add something here at this point. That's correct. I'll turn it over to Mr. Casanova. Thanks so much, Rich. We really appreciate you being with us. Thanks for being with us, Rich. Thank you. I'm glad you touched on the uh, the idea of the, our philosophy um, tra um, traveling on to other county entities. And Rich and I started a uh, what's called the Florida Inter-County IEQ Council. And every year we have a, an, an annual open house here in Fort Myers, Florida. And this will be the fourth annual open house. And the event is co-produced with the Indoor Air Quality Association. And it's free training for government employees and uh, an opportunity to see what we're doing and an opportunity to share ideas and to uh, overcome IAQ problems in government buildings. Um, this year's uh, training, free training, will be for, uh, for facilities maintenance and indoor air quality, uh, risk management people, you know, government employees. Again, they're invited free. Uh, <clears throat> IAQ professionals are invited at a very small and a fair fee. Uh, the Commercial Drying Research Institute will train us on controlling costs and water damage uh, building losses. The keynote speaker will be uh, jo Dr. Joe Stebert, who is uh, internationally recognized as an authority in uh, moisture-related building problems and indoor air quality. It will be at the Harborside Event Center in the historic riverfront district of Fort Myers, Florida, and it will be on Friday, April 20, 2007, and I would like to invite anyone who's in the state of Florida or even out of the state of Florida to come and uh, attend this event. There's more, will be more than 50 uh, IAQ vendors, and uh, it's an all-day event, and uh, I would like to see everyone possible there. So if I have this correct, Mike, this is free to government employees? They can attend for free. As long as they're involved in uh, facilities management, risk management, or indoor air quality. 
that's a tremendous program. I, I joined you there last year. I know you had speakers from EPA there. You had uh, vendors there that were able to, and I think that's how you're able, part of the reason you're able to do it for free for the facilities management people is that the uh, vendors pay a, a small fee to be a part of the program. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you also, Mike Casanova, for joining us, and Rich Beck. Rich, I, I hope we can have you back in the future. I'd really like to do a show that focuses uh, almost exclusively on facilities management. I think this is a really important topic, and that if we if we do a good job of promoting the show and getting the word out to other facilities managers, we could really help a lot of people that are in difficult situations around the country before they get into these difficult situations again, hopefully. So thanks for being with us, and I look forward to uh, talking to both of you again in the near future. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Okay, gentlemen, take care. Our next guest today is a very interesting gentleman, Mr. Pete Consiglia. He has spent three decades in the fire and water damage restoration business, and he's a close friend of Cliff's, so I'd like to turn it over to Cliff from here. Thanks. I'd like to finish his bio. You know, he's an active participant in groups such as the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration and the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. Pete was the original educational chair for the Water Loss Institute as well. Pete, your business card says consultant, trainer, activist to the global restoration community and serving the restoration insurance and IAQ industries. Uh, anyone that's been around as long as you, 30-plus years, should consider adding historian, I think, to, uh, you know, to the business card. What does the term industry activist mean on your business card? Well, Cliff, uh, it's kind of an interesting story how I came up with that, but several years ago when John Downey was uh, the editor for Clean Facts, and I started writing some articles for the magazine, um, I wanted to cre create an appropriate little kind of uh, author's note on myself, and uh, the article that I wrote was uh, kind of a, an in industry uh, um, kind of activist type of article. So I said, John, uh, to characterize myself, what do you think would be a better word to use, advocate or activist? And John thought for about a minute, and he said, nah, he said, you're an activist. And I guess what it means to me is, and, and from John's interpretation, an advocate is kind of someone that may particularly um, uh, be passionate about a particular cause, where an activist is someone that really actually takes specific actions to, to maybe move, th move those causes forward. So um, I just, uh, that's how the, how the term came about, and, and I've always used it. I, I, from my personal viewpoint, I think it's just my involvement in the nonprofit associations and uh, a lot of the industry activities you know, my kind of my volunteer time, if you would, um, to uh, to see the industry grow and mature. Pete, you know, you're passionate about the water restoration industry, and you can answer this question either from your own personal perspective or from an industry perspective. How and where did it start for you? Well, I um, I kind of stumbled onto this industry in the early '70s uh, after I'd gotten out of college and was looking for stuff to do. And um, uh, my, my roots from the industry perspective trace, traces its way back to the janitorial industry. And 
I had in those days I had uh, contracts to maintain some to, some buildings, and uh, one day one of the buildings got flooded, and the property manager said, "Hey, can you can you clean it up?" And of course I didn't know anything at the time, but I had a wet vac. I started sucking the water. I threw a couple fans in there, and um, you know it did okay. But I realized that there has to be a better way. And when I started looking around, I I stumbled across um, uh, ASCR back in the day, uh, Society of Cleaning Technicians, founded by Ed York. Uh, recently deceased, and um, and I just started reaching out to to find more information that was available. One of the interesting gentlemen, a friend of ours, Cliff Lloyd Weaver, I, I came across Lloyd, and he had been traveling around the country, um, giving seminars on drying drying wet carpet, and um, attended attended one of his seminars, bought some equipment, and you know just rest is history from there. Hey Pete, do you have a radio or something in the background, or the some? There's probably on. something in another room. Is it causing some interference? Yeah, we're getting a little bit of interference. All right, took care of that. I think it's better. Good. Perfect. Uh, I guess from your perspective, well, how far has the industry come today? You know, how is it different? I mean, that, that that's you probably could give a day lecture on that question, Cliff. But I mean, you know, how about one I, sentence. <laughs> I, 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 wa- I watch the industry. You know, I mean, in the 70s, it was kind of stumbling to find its way. And then I think uh, in 1981, um, when Claude Blackbird opened up Dry's, I feel that, you know, Claude took Lloyd's original idea and then, you know, he really pushed it to the next level. And um, and then throughout the throughout the 80s and then into the early 90s, a lot more companies started entering the field, the manufacturers, there was a lot of training involved. Um, and now, you know, when you look in the 21st century, you really have this uh, this overlapping between the, the the fire and water damage industry and the indoor air quality industry, and and they picked up a a lot of the issues that kind of make up the water industry per se. But it's uh, it's just been so dramatic. I, I think um, particularly in the last ten years, anyone that started in this industry thirty years ago, I mean, it, it's almost unrecognizable from what it was then. In your opinion, and I I know that you've worked in a lot of buildings, are indoor air quality problems real or are they imagined? I think the the answer to that is both. <laughs> I mean, there there obviously are real problems in buildings um, that affect uh, you know people's health and, and their comfort level of, of being in those buildings. But I think that there's a there's a lot of probably media hype. Um, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of so-called experts that um, gain a certain amount of notoriety and for whatever reason, either lack of knowledge uh, or possibly an agenda, have um, you know may convince people that they, they have a particular problem when when perhaps they don't. So um, uh, I'm not so sure that there's a, you know, there's a, any specific way to answer that question. Okay. Uh, you know, you've been involved with both the cleaning and restoration industry and the IAQ industry. Which industry is currently in the most strategic position and why? Well, strategic position, uh, you mean in reference to uh, um, growth? Prosperity, interest. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a tough one for me. I mean, my roots obviously tra- trace is fire and water damage guy, but when I take a look at the, the dynamic of the, the indoor air quality industry, it seems to me that uh, that they're probably, uh, as an industry, or more strategically positioned, if you would, for for growth. Um, Why? Well, I think because they the issues that they uh, get involved with are more uh, 
far-reaching to the general public and just the general consumers at large. When you look at the fire and water damage industry, it still is an industry that uh, affects a small percent of the population that, that have a disaster. And um, that brings in the dynamic of the insurance companies. And so it, it's still, in my opinion, a below-the-radar industry, if you would. Now, granted, having said that, um, in the last five, six, seven years with the, with the rash of these tremendous hurricane seasons and, of course, the aftermath of 9-11 and in and, and the world of terrorism, our industry has gotten a little bit more limelight in, uh, in, as far as a cleanup and you know, prominence in that regard. But at the end of the day, most people just don't, uh, don't really know who the fire and water damage industry is unless they have a pipe breaker or a fire in their home, where the indoor air quality industry affects people at both levels, both their residences and their businesses, and um, and particularly the you know the, the explosion and the issues surrounding mold. So to me, it would seem that the, the growth is is greater in that industry just because it affects more people. Well, let me ask a follow up to that, Pete. Uh, you are you know you are a forward thinker. You could look into your crystal ball for us and tell me: Will the IAQ industry and the cleaning and restoration industry maybe eventually come together, merge, and become one, or will they stay separate? That's an interesting question, Joe, and I, I hadn't I hadn't actually ever really thought of it in that in those terms. But but having you know you meant you know brought that up, I think it's that's a very interesting concept that I think that possibly one day the fire and water damage industry could come under the the big umbrella, if you would, of the indoor air quality industry, because fire and water restoration problems, if you want to look at it in a big picture and in a forward-thinking way, are really, uh, you know, an indoor air quality problem. I mean, if somebody has to flood or a fire in their building, you know, the building's not inhabitable. There's there's health risk, there's safety risk, all of that. So in reality, it could become a subset of of the the, the, the larger umbrella industry, which really could be IAQ. Is that going to happen in our professional lifetime, meaning, you know, you, me, and Cliff, our, possibly not. But um, I could see it moving in that direction. seems like there's been some movement in that way. As far as your volunteer work, I we had uh, some a guest on, I think it was last week, Lisa Wagner. Lisa Wagner was on, and she was very uh, eloquent in how she spoke about the the strides that we make when we work together in associations. I know you do a lot of volunteer work. What what of your which of your volunteer accomplishments do you consider most significant? Well, I, I probably it'd be hard for me to just pick one, Joe, but I, I think I, I could break it down into two areas. One I think is in the area of education and the other is in the area of um of uh industry I guess I want to call it industry growth. And what I mean by that is in the industry growth area, I've, I've been a champion uh, in the nonprofit arena of um, encouraging uh, conflict of interest policies, more transparency, disclosure, you know, people, um, uh, you know, fetching out the agendas, if you would. Now, I, I don't mean agendas as being a bad thing. You know, at the end of the day, if people didn't have an agenda and didn't have a cause, probably nothing in the world would get done. But I think where the problem comes, at least the way I see it, is in um, the hidden agendas, the um, the potential manipulation um, of a particular reason why somebody may be pushing, you know, a particular initiative or a cause. And I think that um, if, if we become more open and transparent about that, uh, I think the industry will grow and prosper. 
Um, I, I think in the education arena, you know, raising the level of uh, of um, the the technicians, the project managers, the companies that are performing fire and water restoration, IAQ. I think that's real important that we get raised to the level that, that our certifications and the designations that, that companies and individuals hold is more meaningful in the in the general public, not not just within our own industry. And I think ultimately that will lead to, to the industry having the respect and recognition and maybe being considered a profession. Hey, Pete, um, you know, speaking of this, uh, how about an educational comparison? Let me give you a for instance. If your mom had a flood in her house, who would you recommend to send to the job? Would it be an IICRC certified water specialist, or would it be an ASCR WLS, and, and why? Well, I think the answer to that question depends. Um, I mean, if it was just a little small kind of piece of wet carpet, I think either would be fine. But I think if there was a more significant damage to the home and uh, it was a complex issues involving an insurance company and potentially construction stuff, I mean, I would tend to, to go towards the WLS. And the reason I say that is not because an IICRC guy may not be qualified and be the right guy to do it, but I think the, you know, the WLS, and of course I'm going to be a little a little partial here because I've been involved in the development of that program, but I think the WLS is, 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 is more well-rounded in general and being able to deal with all the issues surrounding uh, water loss, not just the technical aspect of doing the cleanup, but the, the dynamic of having to deal with the, the different subcontractors, getting the work done, dealing with the insurance repair, getting the proper estimates in, those type of things. The IICC training really, I think, tends to be more towards the technical aspect, and the WLS, in my opinion, is the next level where you have to have a prerequisite to have all those technical qualifications, and then it, it, it really moves the person or the contractor on to the next level. And can you give us a little more for those that aren't familiar with the WLS designation that you say there's some experience prerequisites or other certification prerequisites prior to taking that program I'm I'm not very familiar with it well the the WLS program when it was first developed in the late 90s by the, the original uh, group uh, steering committee which Cliff and myself were involved with we wanted to create a designation that would be considered the, the top in the, in the industry at the time of anyone that was involved in doing you know, water damage restoration, cleanup, and drying. And uh, at, in that day, Joe, um, there, was no, there, were no, there was no such thing as a mold certification. There was, nothing, uh, there was no such thing as um, a mandated health and safety training, you know, outside of, of course, the, you know, the rules and the regulations that existed under OSHA, but there was really no industry way to, to, uh, to, to enforce that, if you would. Um, there was no ASD training, no wet house training, nothing, nothing of that nature. So we set for, at the time, the highest prerequisites, which uh, people had to go through an existing water damage class, uh, either IICRC class or the uh, ASCR version, which is a combination fire-water class. And, um, and there were some other, other general prerequisites, and they had to do that first before they got into WLS. Well, what's happened over the years is as the industry started to explode and all these other designations have started to... Um, uh, be developed in the little niche fields, if you would, the drying field with the ASD and, of course, the mold and the variety of mold certifications and the industry's recognition that it was important that if they were going to sanction a certification for an individual, they needed to make sure that they did comply with the appropriate uh, health and safety requirements that really by the government. Um, and um, so what's presently happened now is the WLS program is under a little bit of a uh, re, um, reorganization, if you would, to, uh, to revise it and to make it mandatory to have 
these uh, greater a greater prerequisites to get into the program, so it still can maintain its status as being the kind of the top designation. In other words, before you can come to that program, you need to comply with all the other components that would make up a, a water specialist, which is a general water training program, a more drying specific program, a mold related program, and of course the health and the safety. Pete, would you agree that in WLS one of the key differences is that uh, in the WLS program, uh, ASCR sought information outside of our industry. You know, rather than cloning people within uh, the WLS program, you know, you, you brought in people from the outside. Well, I think that was something that that came from the original the original uh, years of the. the the original intent of the founding fathers of the Water Loss Institute, which traced its roots back to the mid-90s. The WS program got started maybe about four years after the, w, the w, uh, WLI kind of got its feet on the ground and had some successful conferences. And one of the things that, that the founding fathers of that group wanted, and the mandate to me as the educational chair, was to go out and go find uh, related industry speakers who were out of our industry and to build some bridges and to bring that type of expertise in, such as in the field of microbiology, of building science, um, legal legal issues, you know, find specialty attorneys that, that were involved in that, um, the government agencies. And these are the types of things that I did with my committees and, and you know, to help bring that in. And uh, my personal feeling at the time, which I think was echoed, you know, echoed the, uh, the, founding, the founding group, Founding Steering Committee was is that you know we've we've learned everything we can from ourselves and from all the leaders within our own industry. Now it's time to, to listen to others, and that was a very refreshing experience because what it did is it did two things. The first thing it did is it validated some of the stuff that we figured out on our own, and that was good. You know you got the scientific validation, you got um, you know people from the government who said things like, "Well, these restoration guys really know more than we thought they did." You know. But the other thing that it did is it did dispel some of the misnomers, and it put us on the right track so that we didn't repeat, you know, the folklore, if you would. I mean, the industry basically came about based on anecdotal information, and and anecdotal information isn't bad, but at some point the anecdotal needs to be taken to the next level, and you need to have a, a, a validation that says, look, this anecdotal stuff really is true, but you know what? Some of it maybe is 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 just an old wives' tale, if you would, and... Uh, you know, you need to move away from that and move move on to something else. Just to um, be, just to give fair play here, the what would be the highest level designation under the IICRC's programs that would be somewhat similar to the WLS? Is there is there such a thing, or is it just that you have a combination of certifications? No. Well, I think. Well, I. Yes, yes, and no, Joe. I mean, it, it, their highest designation, I guess, that would be the closest equivalent to the WLS or the Certified Restorer Program at ASCR would be something like their their uh, Master um, uh, Restoration Technician, and then they have two they have two branches. One would be in the water area, one would be in the fire area. It would seem to me that if a if a if a if an IICRC registrant was willing to take all the courses and live up to all the CEC requirements to become you know, master in both fire and water, that he's going to have the type of training that would be required under both the WLS and the CR. I mean, I think that that they'll have gone to a significant amount of courses. They'll have the same CEC type requirements to maintain that. But where I see the differentiation is is that what the WLS requires is not only that you've met those prerequisites and went to those courses, but then you come to the WLS course for a, a week 
to in some cases review some of the stuff you're already supposed to know, listen to some outside industry experts on very key topics such as building science and the law, and then, uh, then take the comprehensive exam, uh, and then meet the requirements of having to do a research paper and, uh, and a formal report and demonstrate that you're able, able to do independent research and write a formal report because once you get sanctioned, if you would, with that high designation industry, it puts a, a greater duty to not only represent yourself, represent your company, represent your association, or represent your industry with the general public, with the insurance industry, with property and facility managers who call on you as an expert to evaluate situations, to articulate the points, to make recommendations, and then ultimately to put it in writing and, and take a position. And, and that, that position, in, in your opinions, um, have far-reaching complications in the marketplace of decisions that people may do in reference to renovation, remediation. There's, a, there's big cost involved, and uh, there's also risk that the clients would have on how they would uh, make recommendations to their tenants, uh, to their employees in a building, and trying to resolve these problems. Before we go, we have two final questions we like to ask every guest. Number one, is there anything that you would like to relate to consumers out there that may be listening to the show and that are having a water damage problem or a, uh, are recovering from a fire of some type? Anything that, any tips that you can give our consumer listeners? Well, I think the best thing that they could do is to find a professional restorer that is going to represent them. And what I mean by that is whether this person is an ASCR certified person, IICRC, IAQA in a particular discipline, I don't think that's nearly as important as having a clear understanding that they're going to hire that cleaning, restoration, indoor air quality person, and they're going to represent the best interest of the consumer regardless of whatever relationships they may have with the building owners or with the, uh, well, of course, in many cases, if it's commercial, the building owner would be the consumer, but with the insurance company that's involved. And very clearly articulate to say, look, we, we work for you, Mrs. Consumer or Mr. Building Owner, and we'll work with your insurance company. But when push comes to shove, um, you know, they need to remember who's hired them and who's, who's actually, you know, they're working for. And I think that um, this is a big issue that's facing our industry today. There's really a big split on who the customer is. Is it the person signing the check, or is it the person that's actually authorized you to work in their property? So you would suggest that consumers recognize and understand that that company is working for them, not the insurance company, if I can sum it up real quick. Absolutely, Joe. I mean, the insurance companies may be writing the check, but at the end of the day, at least I believe from an ethical standpoint, and in some cases probably a legal standpoint, although I'm not a lawyer, is that once that consumer signs that authorization and signs that contract to have that person come and work in their home or their building, they work for them, and that's their primary fiduciary duty. Excellent. Hey, um, hey Pete, uh, I, I think before we give you the last word, you know, one of the things that you have a reputation for being is an industry watchdog, and what was your most significant accomplishment in that role? Well, I think the thing that I'm, I'm probably most proud of, Cliff, is um, I mentioned earlier in the interview that obviously championing the, I, the uh, conflict of interest policy with both ASCR and IICRC, and I'd like to see those policies be more meaningful and more rigorously enforced. But the thing that I'm really most proud of, um, if I had to identify it down to one, is the, the steps that the IICRC took after um, the first edition of the S-520 mold document 
to actually go down the road of ANSI approval and, uh, on their standards. It's a very tedious uh, process, but I think that um, um, when the IICRC developed their own policy manual and what their process was, which uh, basically predated them actually applying for ANSI, but they, they went down that road, and now you know all their standards are in, in the ANSI development process, um, I think this is going to bring about uh, uh, more meaningful standards, not just for our industry, but also for the, for the different users that would also be using those documents. And, um, and uh, anyway, I've, I feel good about that. Well, I guess uh, before we let you go, we always want to give you the last word. Is there anything that you'd like to add? Um, well, I'm not... Uh, no, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd just like to say that uh, you know I appreciate you guys inviting me to be on the program, and uh, I know you're uh, you know you're just about a month or two into the program. I, I wish you luck. I look forward to uh, to returning your returning the program wherever I could uh, add value uh, you know for the listeners. We look forward to having you. How can our guests get in contact with you, Pete? Um, well, uh, I guess probably the easiest thing to do is just send me an email which, at uh, pcpathfinder at yahoo.com. P Pathfinder at, at yahoo.com. Yahoo.com. PC, my initials, and Pathfinder. I guess that's how I characterize myself. That's what led to the industry watchdog activities. Perfect. Pete, thanks again. Thank you, Pete. Really appreciate having you on today. And we'll definitely bring you back. Oh, yes. Next on the list. And uh, before we do that, let's just remind our listeners that we are here weekly. Please join the party. We have a couple of ways that people can call in or text message in, and they can go to the TalkShoe website and get a PIN number and then call in. The call-in number is 724-444-7444, and the show ID number is 1547 or you can text message us. Our last guest today, I would like to turn it over to Cliff to uh, to uh, introduce our well, last guest. Thanks, Joe. Our next guest is Howard Schur. He's a professional engineer and partner in a sport of wash systems, uh, the developer of a unique cleaning and restoration machine. Welcome. Howard, are you there? Yeah, hi, Cliff. How are you doing? Good, good. What is the Asporta system? Well, first of all, Cliff, thanks for the invite on this show. This is really an exciting opportunity for us, and as well as it really highlights a, a new technology here that's really going to catch on, I believe. That's, you know, that's collect information immediately off the net is, and to have this stuff stored that you can go back and refer to it is really quite exciting. Thank you. We'd like to call this the technology highlight segment. Yeah, and you're the first one because I think that you have what I consider to be a pretty hot and exciting technology, and that's why we wanted you to tell us a little bit more about it and uh, our listeners as well. So what's unique about the system? Well, the Sporta the system is really an Sporta wash system that incorporates uh, both a, a new technology to to and chemicals to be able to clean stuff that we haven't been able to clean before. In traditional washing technology, the way uh, things are traditionally washed is by agitation, by using mechanical action to actually shake the goods, uh, using gravity to drop them, and then it's the it's the dropping that applies the energy that releases the dirt. You mean in a washing machine clothes. like someone would have in their home? Exactly okay. right. Front loader or top loader. 
Leaf spore technology uses water pressure. We actually have a, a, a large 3,600-pound machine that has eight containers in it. The contents are put in each of the containers, and those con though that that has a wheel that turns through a cleaning medium. So the goods are actually fixed into the compartment, and what we're doing is actually taking those goods and pushing them through the medium under a tremendous amount of force. And it's a water pressure, or the, the pressure of that medium being forced through those goods that actually does the cleaning. Could you give me a simple analogy that people could see which would, you know, that they could understand it, you know, without seeing it? You know. I, I think when you look at washing and cleaning, what, what you really have is, a, is the pressure of water pushing through the goods. So if you took a, a high-pressure washer that's used for cleaning cars and actually sprayed it onto clothing, the problem with high pressure is that the, the, the water coming out of it is going at a very high velocity. In this system, the water pressure is there and it's moving very, very slowly, but, it's, but because of such incredible pressure, it's actually forcing through the goods and taking all the contaminants out. I think one of the people at your company described it to me as you know trying to walk uh, through water, and uh, you know you're you know how does that relate to the system like walking through water? Well, walking there's a lot of it takes a lot of energy to walk through water. You get a lot of pressure on you as you as you start walking through the water. That water pressure is what actually forces through the goods and actually cleans them. Why was the system originally developed? Well, back in 1999-2000, uh, the founders of this company, uh, Margie and Randy Rode, were on their way to Vancouver with their sons for a hockey tournament. And the the hockey bags in the back of the vehicle stunk so bad <laughs> that on the drive back, they said, we've got to do something about this. So they, they set about to create a washing machine that would clean sports goods and hockey goods. And when they, when they started to look at what was available, there wasn't anything at the time that could do this. So uh, they mortgaged their houses, and away they went, and the rest is history. We have over uh, 150 machines that are installed throughout arenas and hockey uh, centers throughout North America. We have two in Europe. And it completely, the machine completely removes all of the odor, all of the bacteria, in everything from the helmet down to the skates. So you can actually put... A leather item such as a leather shoe, uh, leather skates, leather purses, luggage in soap and water without ruining it. Yes, you can. And the the way we do that, and this is this is what uh, we find so amazing is that the machine is washing at relatively low temperatures, about 20 degrees Celsius, and it's washing in a relatively neutral pH. So both of those conditions allow leathers to be cleaned, and all the contaminants removed. You know, I understand that, you know, you've cleaned all these sporting goods, but you've also, uh, from your website, moved into some other areas, such as uh, dealing with uh, turnout gear for fire departments and uh, mold, fire, and microbial remediation. How does the system really protect human health? Well, this is this is what's really blown us away. Is the if we look at the fire industry per se, the uh, turnout gear and all of that, there's there's a number of components 
that are susceptible to damage in a traditional washing system. Turnout gear, per se, has a reflective tape on that gear that's uh, made typically when it's put, that tape is put into an alkalide mechanical washing system, the, the glass reflectivity is affected. And after five to 10 washes, the reflective tape is no longer reflective and has to be replaced. The second component is the, all, of, all of the fire gear has a inner liner that is uh, there to protect the fireman from water permeating from the outside into the skin, to the inside, so he doesn't get burnt by the hot water. That liner also gets damaged by the um, by traditional washing methods. The Asporta system is able to, and this is documented through a number of tests with 3M and DuPont, is able to clean both those items without causing any deterioration in the retro retro. retro reflectivity. That's a tough word. For yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. And the ability to reflect back the light and also in the ability of the liners to be able to uh, maintain uh, their impregnability. Is it true that the Canadian government did a study on fire-related soot and health hazards from it? Yes, yes it has. In fact, uh, one of the outcomes of the studies is that if firemen don't clean their gear, and firemen overall, in the past, haven't cleaned their gear. Their life expectancy is 10 years less than a normal person because that gear has so many contaminants and it continues to aggravate and cause cancers within the firemen. So your system would assist people who are doing fire remediation or restoration projects by taking some of the contents, let's say, and taking those contents and putting them through this system? Well, that's, that's the other big area and, and the big surprise for us. One of our machines was bought by a contents restorer in Portland, uh, May, uh, Portland uh, Oregon. Oregon, and they started washing shoes and all of these other goods. We subsequent, uh, soft goods that traditionally they would clean by hand. We, we then started to work with restoration companies to understand exactly how this machine would work. And, and what we're finding is that we can take, first of all, anything that's fire damaged, soot damaged, and put it through this process, and it comes out totally clean. The most amazing thing, and, and what I'm talking about is soft goods, shoes, leathers, purses, expensive purses, expensive luggage, um, all sorts of bulky items that you wouldn't normally put into a washing machine that typically gets hand cleaned. The other amazing thing is that if you if you have a category one or category two, uh, if you have gray water or or black water sewage damaged goods, you can take all of that and put it in the machine. And we, we have the data that shows that 85% of those soft goods that have been damaged by sewage can be cleaned in our machine Amazing. at a cost of less than 20% of the replacement value. I understand that at least one of Canada's leading insurance companies is pretty excited about this equipment. Could you comment on that? Yes. Well, actually, there's a, there, we have five of the major companies in Canada now, of the insurance companies, have been uh, are really excited about the ability to clean 
these soft goods. And uh, to the point where um, in one case, we've been able to save one company in a month of operating the machine over $300,000 in claims. Wow. I can imagine some of the uh, consultants out there maybe questioning, you know, okay, this sounds like a great thing, but we'd really like to look a little more closely at how the testing was done and how we determined how clean these things are. Where where could we find more information like that? And then maybe we could get some feedback from people that review this information. That's a good question. We have uh, a website, www.asporta.ca. And in that website, you'll find information relative to the independent testing that was done by laboratories in Calgary called HydroQuail. Uh, there's two series of tests that look at the kill rates of various bacteria under various circumstances. And you'll see the kill rates are up there in the 99.9997% of bacteria, mold, and fungus. Kill, 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 right? That's right. Now, what a lot of people in this industry will ask, well, is it not, you know, we don't always want to just kill things. Is it also removing this particulate? And how did you determine how much of this uh, fine particulate was removed from these items? Yeah, in the second test, we actually created cultures and looked at uh, and actually measured what was left of the bacteria or of the mold. So not only are we killing it, but we're actually removing it. We've just finished uh, a study with the University of Alberta along with uh, a, a company out of Texas to look at the effects of our machining of our machine and cleaning relative to traditional cleaning methods on on uh, fire turnout gear over a series of 10 parameters. And one of those removal of contamination, removal of bacteria, removal of the bacteria and all of that sort of thing. That Those test results we'll, we'll be releasing by December. And they show significant, significant removal of material. We like to uh, pride ourselves on introducing new technology here at IAQ Radio, and we hope that uh, we will have people taking you up on looking at the website, looking at the data that's been collected, and we will probably also have some people interested in doing some testing of their own, I would imagine, to well, see how these things Yeah, go. I think it even goes further than that. I think on the website they've got a list of where all of the machines are located. I know my nephew uh, plays hockey in New Jersey, and after I told my brother uh, about the machine, they had uh, my nephew's hockey gear cleaned, and they were very impressed with how good it looked and how good it smelled. So uh, a lot of consumers can use it. Also, restoration companies are able to use it. Uh, are restoration companies able to purchase this equipment? or Yes, it... they are. In fact, uh, we've just... Um... In Ontario now, there's a company called Winmar, and every one of those locations will have one of our machines. Very good, very good. Now so the it last... makes money and saves money, so it sounds like a good business strategy, Howard. Well, you know, everyone wins in this case. Every time that machine is turned on, either somebody is saving money or making money. Right. In the case of the homeowner, they're getting their, they're getting their original stuff back in, a, in pre-loss condition. In the case of the insurance companies... 
they're only paying 20% of what they would normally have to pay 100% of because most of the stuff in, in terms of water damage stuff it gets thrown away. And in terms of the restoration company, normally they would throw it away. They wouldn't see any revenue from that. Now they can see 20% of the replacement value. Howard, before, you let you, uh, before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to add or anything we missed discussing today? Well, I think what, one of the most interesting uh, and heart-rendering stories I've, I have about how this machine, how this technology helps, is in, back a, a couple of months ago in Waterloo, there was a total fire. And this nine-year-old boy lost his tiger, which, you know, it's a, it's right, a sure. stuffed animal. Yeah, sure. And uh, in, in the loss, they, they found this tiger underneath all the debris, and it was soot damaged and frozen in a big block of ice. That machine, we put that tiger into the machine, and uh, an hour and a half later, it was back to its original pristine condition. And that, and that was presented to the boy uh, a couple weeks later, and it, and it was the only thing that he had left from his house. Everything else was destroyed. I'm going to tell so you something. Pleased. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you the counter to that story, Howard. And I think we'll just take a couple of minutes. I remember actually buying what was called an on-location dry, dry cleaning machine probably about 30 years ago. What was unique about this technology is we'd bring it in the house. The machine would literally work like a steam cleaner. It would spray out the dry cleaning solvent, and it would evaporate it. And I was working in a fire-damaged home and cleaning item after item successfully. I cleaned the drapes. I cleaned the upholstered furniture and so on and so forth. And this girl was clutching this little raggedy anvil. And she asked me if I could clean it. And I said, sure, honey, uh, I'll clean it for you. And unfortunately, this doll was, was stuffed with styrofoam. And I began cleaning it. And it was just like uh, the, uh, it was just like the, um, the, the Wicked Witch melting away. Because literally, this doll collapsed because all the styrofoam uh, you know, was destroyed. And I literally ran all over Pittsburgh with my employees to find a replacement raggedy and doll, which I finally found for her. But, you know, had I known of the sporter, had it been invented 30 years ago, uh, we would have had a better result like you had with the ticker. Thank you very much for joining us today, Howard. Yes. I sure appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I, again, it's what's the website again? www.esporta.ca. Thank you. Thank you very much, Howard. We appreciate having you on the show. Thanks once again to our sponsors for today's show. Today's show was sponsored by John Don Products, where remediation and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com, and Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry at ieconnections.com. We would like to see everyone join us again for the party next week at noon. Every week at noon we'll be having a party here at IAQ Radio. If you'd like more information, you can go to info at iaqtraining.com or you can email me directly at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And that's a wrap for this week's show. Thanks to CJ and Cliff, my co-host, and the folks here at Talk Show for bringing this new medium to the people of the world. Yeah, we're up.